This is Americana Podcast, the 51st state. back Americana podcast listeners. We hope all has been well in our short summer break, but we are back and ready to talk all things roots. There are four types of discourse in language. Descriptive, narrative, expository, and argumentative. And it seems that all four are readily present in any niche interest group, real or on the internet. Anything from the way a machine works, descriptive, the exact timeline of Tolkien's world building, narrative, someone breaking down the latest universe development in a comic book-based film, expository, and argumentative, which that one goes without example. If you need one, go to Twitter. On the note of argumentative, some may disagree with this next statement. But the difference between good discourse and bad discourse depends on the presence of resources. Resources establish credibility in one's opinions and or points. They inform subsequent works, and if you're a bibliography and research nerd, uh, don't know who that would be, They are excellent roadmaps to other sources of information that you can sink your teeth into. Really exciting stuff, I know. Very riveting. But when those resources aren't made readily available, that's where discourse breaks down. Without them, there's a few formal problems, like credibility and questioning of objectivity. Mainly the problem I'd like to focus on is, without resources, how were you able to effectively formulate your contribution to the discussion at hand, and why should others participate with you? One of the key ways we talk about music with musicians is by asking about their influences. Influences tell us so much about who we're speaking with and how they developed. They give us ways to describe an artist's sound. Influences tell the story of formative discovery. They give us a timeline of the kinds of music that shaped an artist in different eras. Influences allow us to argue what was ultimately important in flows of time and culture. Musical influences are just one part but a big one in the terms of musical resources. Artists don't owe us that information, we know that. What are your influences is a boring question and it's asked in pretty much every interview. They can keep their secrets, but it's nice when that door is open. Which brings us to this episode's guests, the Boxmasters. The Boxmasters is made up of Billy Bob Thornton and JD Andrews. Thornton and Andrews met in 2007, when Thornton brought in Andrews as a sound engineer for his 2007 record, Beautiful Door. The two found that they had similar approaches and views of music and started playing together somewhat regularly. After some time, the two began recording and eventually created their band, The Boxmasters. The name comes from Southern slang, referring to a hot shot, with echoes of Porter Wagner's The Wagon Masters, which Thornton had previously played in for a time. Since 2007, the group has toured extensively with the likes of Willie Nelson and Ray Price, taking a break between 2010 and 2015, where they reconvened to make the record Somewhere Down the Road. They released their latest album, Help, I'm Alive, in April of 2022, when this interview was actually recorded. 
The Boxmasters do not shy away from their influences and what they build their sound on. Pulling from groups like the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Mott and the Hoople, the duo worked to echo the sounds they personally loved from the 60s and 70s, while also giving it that somewhat more southern edge with original lyrics. All topped off with classic Bakersfield-like production, and neither Andrews or Thornton will shy away from telling you as such. So join us today as our host, Robert Earl Keane, speaks with Billy Bob Thornton and J.D. Andrews about musical influences, recording style, and their latest and upcoming projects. I'm your producer, Clara Rose, and this is Americana Podcast, The 51st State. My old man said in 65, you gotta Hello, everybody. My name is Robert O'Keefe, and you're listening to Americana Podcast, the 51st State, and we're so excited to have our guest today, Billy Bob Thornton, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, I believe that he has a n- new record out, we're going to talk about that in just a minute, but we also have um, uh, J.D. Andrew, and uh, J.D. and Billy Bob uh, work on these songs together, work on these records together, but howdy, everybody. Hey, how's everything? Oh, man, it's oh, going well. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for being here. Uh, we're in Kerrville, Texas today, and uh, we are going to be talking about oh the new record I guess let's just talk about that because it was it was dropped yesterday which would be April fifteenth twenty twenty two so uh, congratulations well thank you yeah yeah it's our twelfth record uh, as the Box Masters uh, J D and I formed the Box Masters in uh, uh, well it's been we're going on sixteen years with this band mm-hmm. and uh, before that I did solo records and tours and. Uh, uh, when JD was working with me on a, one of my solo records as an engineer, because JD's an engineer, and it helps when your partner in the band's an engineer. You don't you don't have any middleman. Uh, I, I, I think that's <laughs> and, a great idea. <laughs> and uh, and so he was working that record, and we we cut a couple of songs together in the studio one night. We liked the way it sounded, so we, mm-hmm. we formed this band. Uh-huh. And he he was your engineer, and then y'all you play the guitar. Is that what you play? Yeah, it's yeah. I, I you know Billy basically asked me to do a cover of Lost Highway for a Canadian TV show. Uh-huh. One, he's like, hey, we're going to cut this song tonight. I've seen you playing guitar around a little bit. Learn this song, and we're going to cut it tonight. The and, Hank Williams song, Lost yeah, Highway. Yeah, exactly. Cool. And so we did it, and it just had this cool thing. And it's like I remember asking him, it's like, can I try an electric guitar part on this? Because we just did an acoustic and a real simple bass thing. And I was like, can I put this – Can I? I've got a guitar idea. Can I do this? And uh, yeah, it was real primitive sounding, but it had a thing, and we just were, you know, kind of like, hmm, maybe there's something here. So we just uh, started recording stuff. And he told me he he played me this song, "Yesterday's Gone" by Chad and Jeremy, and he's like, "Here, listen to this. At the core of it, it's really a hillbilly song, but done by these, you know, kind of squirrely English guys." <laughs> and he's like, "I think we could turn this into, you know, a real." Uh, you know, like real solid hillbilly song, you know? And so that's what we did. Cause back in that time we were doing kind of this combination, um, British invasion, hillbilly mashup stuff and, you know, really experimental things that were 
really different from what he was doing as a solo artist. And so then after a couple of those records, then we just kind of, you know, went into how we kind of play as a, you know, natural, like natural influences and everything like that, which is a lot of uh, British invasion stuff still, but with the birds and the beach boys and John Prine and Christopherson and, you know, just uh, all the stuff that we've listened to for, you know, all of our lives. So Billy Bob, uh, when you hear a song like Yesterday's Gone uh, by Chad and Jeremy, um, what are you hearing that's like getting you, is, is, is resonating with you? Well, you know, I was raised you know, on like everybody else, when we saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, mm -hmm. you know, that mm -hmm. was, you right. know, it kind of changed your life. Yeah. And uh, it, it's not a unique thing to say because everybody says it, right, right. but it really did change everybody. And uh, so, you know, we, in the beginning, uh, you know, my mom uh, listened to uh, a lot of like Ray Price and Jim Reeves and, uh, uh, different country artists and everything but, but you like the country crooners in a way is well, that, and, yeah, yeah in yeah. a way i did yeah and uh, i was real fond of jim reeves and uh but uh she listened to a lot of elvis and the guys at sun records at the time you know jerry lee and uh and charlie rich and and cash and all of them and uh and billy lee riley who not everybody knows about who did he was one of the sun records guys and so that's what I heard first. But then when I heard the Beatles, I was like, that's what I want to do. You know, when I saw all those girls screaming, I was like, no, <laughs> I'd like to try that. <laughs> you know, it and has so, an effect on a person. Right, Absolutely. Especially a young boy. I'd say. Yes, it does. And so uh, there was something about what they were doing and what it, you know, really turned out to be was, you know, we think that we were influenced by the British invasion. But in fact, what happened was uh, they were influenced by American music. Mm -hmm. And so they listened to Little Richard and Carl Perkins and, you know. Willie Dixon. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, Buddy Holly and all them. And then they did it in the English way, which was more palatable for teenagers and little kids in America, and also the parents <laughs> would let them listen to it because American parents didn't want you listening to Little Richard right, and Chuck sure. Berry. Right. So, uh, so they sent it back to us in this pop form, and when I was a kid, that's the kind of bands we played in. We played right. songs by the Dave Clark Five and the Beatles and the Kinks and all those people. Chad you know? and Jeremy. Chad and, and Chad and Jeremy. Right. And uh, and Peter and Gordon, which mm -hmm. was the other duo, you right, know. And then right. later, you know, uh, he uh, Peter became a big producer and everything. But uh, there was something we heard in those people that we could hear how we influenced them. Uh -huh. And if you listen to some of those songs, they might uh, uh, they might sound a little bit more sophisticated or something like that. But they weren't as raw. Right. Right. As our stuff sure, was. Absolutely. You and I have both been accused of singing with our raspy voices. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yes, we like, have. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, but we were all, you know, American musicians right. were always raw, right. you know. Mm -hmm. And so when I was a kid in rock and roll bands, that's the way I sang. But we came up with this idea. Let, let's do it as if Frank Zappa wrote the songs. David Allen Coe sang them, 
<laughs> and <laughs> and a British invasion band played the music. And that was sort of the genesis of the Boxmasters. And it wasn't, it was very stylized. It wasn't like what we do mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. you know. And, uh, but it was a lot of fun to do those records. And uh, after that, we decided, well, you know what? Let's just play and sing like we do. Mm-hmm. And pretty much ever since we've done that. Well, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, really, if we would have stayed in that thing, it's like, well, we would have just had to keep doing the same thing over right. and over. Right. And, you know, there's, no, you know. So was there less production like, around those things? Or did, did you did there you was bring a, it? There was a lot. There was a you lot. Know, yeah. if we were doing a lot of stuff. I mean, but at the same time, it was, you know, trying to keep a very, you know, like 50s and early 60s kind of sound to it. Mm-hmm. But uh, there would still be a lot of noises. But we also did like the Sgt. Pepper thing where all the songs melded together mm-hmm. and there would be mm-hmm. um, transitional music that would be, you know, like little snippets right. of things right. that would go in between. And, you know, so there was a lot of production in that way. But, mm-hmm. And it was, you know, like a full hour, you know, or 45 minutes, just nonstop of so you, know, you stuff. Would say so, that was some kind of concept record? Well, yeah, yeah, it that, really. That, yeah. yeah, okay. In this... In yeah, the, the sound, kind of the, box, in the yeah, sound ways. Yeah, sound it, ways? all of it was you know very conceptualized and uh-huh. put together and and put you know produced in a certain way. Uh, so the first couple of records, those weren't under really the Boxmasters thing. They were just still under Billy Bob Thornton. Or no, those no, were those were Boxmaster. Those records. were the beginning Boxmaster records. The what were the titles of those records? The first one was just called the Boxmasters, uh-huh. and the second one was called Mod Billy, which okay. was a sound that we Mod we coined Billy. a right. phrase. Right for what our music was mod billy you take mod english and Uh you take Ah. hillbilly and put them together and so our second record mod billy actually was uh number one on the americana charts for two weeks at one point and uh and in those days we we would do one we did two record sets on Uh the first two records Uh so one side one record was all original stuff the second record was all covers. So what we would do is if we took, uh, let's say, uh, uh, a Mel Tillis song or uh-huh. a Roger Miller song, uh-huh. we would put more mod into it to uh-huh. make it make match the sound. Okay. But then if we took a, a song by the Turtles or, or uh, Chad and Jeremy, yeah. whatever, we would yeah. put more hillbilly into it. Ah. So that way they met in the middle, you know. I see. I see. And, uh, and it was always so weird because I don't really sing that way, and J.D. doesn't really play that way, but we did it, you know, like I said, all on purpose. And it became a thing, and we wanted to be as weird as we could so like we had one thing. was that a stretch for you guys uh, not that no, not, <laughs> okay. not that much of a stretch yeah, yeah. but there's one thing on the first album because like jd said there's interstitial music so no song ended everything went with some like 
sound effects or whatever right into the next song. So it was hard for DJs to cut a single out of it, sure. right? <laughs> and uh, so one of the things that we did is we, we said, well, we ought to do a Beatles song. What are we going to do? And I'd already had the idea that we were going to do Knoxville Girl by the Leuven Brothers. Uh-huh. And, you know, Knoxville Girl's a murder ballad. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Met a little girl and, in Knoxville town. Uh, sound and I know well. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yes. And so we thought, well, here's an idea. What if we take a song that's the most innocent pop song ever, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> and if we put those two together, so it goes from, does it go from Knoxville to I Want to Hold Your Hand or the other way around? I can't remember. Uh, I feel like Knoxville, I, Girls, Knoxville Girls first. first. Yeah. So we did Knoxville Girl, but t- we did this weird version of it. Well, like, I remember playing a big parade drum that made all kind of weird noises, and ha- we had all this crazy, you know, sound effects and stuff in it. So Knoxville Girl just sounds it. It sounds so much more murderous than the Living <laughs> Brothers did it. And then it goes right into "I Want to Hold Your Hand," but when you hear it after Knoxville. Knoxville girl, like David Allen Coe's singing it, it also sounds like a murder song. <laughs> so, so I think we did get outside the box. There, right, so yeah, we did. Yeah. And we so, also we, we did we the did the Wilburn Brothers version of Knoxville Girl too, because we uh, yeah we did right. a show you know in Nashville one time, and Charlie Charlie Leuven came on stage with us, uh-huh. and we played that song, and we played the Wilburn Brothers version, and oh, he boy. had no idea what we were doing. And well, part because of it. Charlie's version had more verses. Yeah. yeah. And we did the Wilburn Brothers version because they were doing two or three minute, you know, sure. songs for the radio. Right. And and I knew the Wilburn Brothers, uh, knew Teddy very well. Uh, the first publishing deal I ever got in 1977 was with Teddy Wilburn in Nashville. Really? And they grew up in Hot Springs, where I was born. Oh, okay. And they, used they had this TV show in, in Houston, and you spent time in Houston. Like, oh yeah, yeah, K- sure. KPRC or one of those. Right? Absolutely. And on Saturday afternoon, one of those like really <laughs> oh yeah spots that nobody watches television much. But if you like the Wilbur Brothers, it was happening. Yeah, and yeah. there wasn't anything. It was like one of those cheap science fiction movies in the fifties. The whole set was just a wall behind them, and then <laughs> maybe put up a fake cactus or something like that. You know. Yeah. And uh, but my mother had a crush on Teddy Wilburn when she was a kid. <laughs> Which is ironic if you knew uh, Teddy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. And, uh, but anyway, so um, they would come over to Alpine, Arkansas, where I was raised, and uh, they would change clothes at my grandmother's house where mm. I lived as a kid. So I met Teddy as young as three or four years old. Mm. And uh, they would play at the church. Mm. And uh, they were just teenagers, you know, when they first started coming over there when my mom was a teenager. And years later, when I went to Nashville and I was knocking on doors, you know, I, I found Surefire Music, which was their publishing company, and they actually agreed to sign me up. And to this day, I have a letter from Teddy. And when I was growing up, I didn't use the name Billy Bob, mm-hmm. you know, because back in the South, it was almost like, you know, such a stereotype mm-hmm. that, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't use that. It was just Billy. Mm-hmm. And Teddy wrote me a letter, and he said, Dear Billy, which, uh, no, he said, Dear Billy Bob, which, by the way, I think you should use now that you're out in California, mm-hmm. because people will never forget that. And he said, I promise you this will serve you in the future. Nice. Isn't that something? Yeah. 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 And people are usually afraid they can kind of offer that kind of advice a lot of times. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Talk it over with an expert trained mind. They can locate everything. 
so the box masters you took these these songs and made them uh, basically mod billy is mm. what what's going on and then <laughs> where was the transition to what you are closer to now well, I think a lot of it was because the people that got what we were doing uh -huh. really got it. Uh -huh. right. I mean, we had fans that were like, you know, just ape over it because they loved, they got all the influences and they got how we were doing a tongue-in-cheek sort of dark, humorous mm -hmm. thing, you know. And the people who didn't get it didn't get it at all, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Right. And I think that's when we decided that we were going to just – let's just play like we play which is guys who grew up on the beach boys and the birds and right people like that and that's that's what we've been doing ever since and and with each record we get a little bit more mm -hmm. uh i would say you know edgier and more uh like a rock and roll band right. you know right. i mean the, the first couple of records after mod billy yeah we did we did three or four three four five records in between Mod Billy and then the next record that came out. Right. So it was a good five years between there before another one came out. So we had all these things, and there's this whole transition. You know, if you go back and look at it, it's like going from the start to where we then put another record out. It's a big transition of going from that kind of Mod Billy sound to, you know, a more of a american rock and roll band kind sort of a slower of ramp yeah. then a slower yeah ramp. exactly but all yeah. of a sudden you know yeah. bam five years later we put out a record right. it's got this more jangly you know right. american pop rock sound to it right. so it's like you know let's talk about your new record just dropped uh, uh, april april 15th 2022 and um you, you know in that in you know listening to that record uh i i got a couple of things that i'd like to uh ask um Number one is the production there and the sounds on your vocals and, and the drums. I mean, it's just really pristine. Mm. And I just, and I thought, well, no, I did. I think it is, <laughs> it is pristine. And um, and I just, I, I, I like to know, like, how, how long did you work on this record to, you know, get, get those sounds and uh, get that clarity of sound, really? <laughs> well, we, we can honestly, I mean, and JD's a wizard. Uh -huh. uh, Basically, we use the compressors and the different things that just the Beatles used in right. the '60s. So, are we doing analog here? Or are we looking at digital or mix a mix? Well, it's, we use Pro Tools, but we mix to tape every record. Every time, yeah, every, yeah, it's a yeah an analog mix of a digital recording. Okay, so right. so you, know, you run it through Pro Tools and then run it. Yeah, through we, the we catch it. Yeah, we tape. record it in Pro Tools. It's just you know it's just easier and sure. faster and right. and. Uh, um, yeah, and then, you know, after we get it, we, we basically have Pro Tools act like a tape machine. Uh -huh. But we record so much that if we were using tape, you know, it would take two or three times as long, oh. and it would cost a thousand times I, more. I understand tape's <laughs> really expensive these days. Yeah, yeah. exactly. We're basically starting the song at the beginning right. and then playing through it. Right. So it's like Billy plays the drums from the you know we'll start with a scratch and a and a so scratch acoustic and a vocal all on every record we've done yeah. really oh yeah, yeah so nice Billy plays drumming. the drums the drums <laughs> and uh, nice drumming, lead man. and you know high harmony vocals and then I do all the guitars and bass and right. low harmonies right. and uh, now right. we've started adding keyboards and stuff in there too so yeah, I, I, I play one. some one handed you know right. piano and organ yeah. and stuff like that yeah um, but it's you know we. We've been recording before this fall. We would just go to Henson Studios in Hollywood. It's a the old A&M Studios. And 
that's where we recorded everything. And so we worked there so much, it was really fast to just set up. They knew what we wanted, you know, what microphones, they would have them up and ready. And we'd load our stuff in there and set it up and just start bashing away and, you know, cut a song at least every day, uh -huh. if not, you know, one and a, and Are you start cutting on more songs than you use on the record most of the time when you do these things? You know, a few, I think. Sometimes we did, but for the most part, when we were at Henson, because we had a clock, yeah, you know, over there at A and M, and yeah, so, and a, and, a, and a, the clock meaning money. No, I don't <laughs> know. And so we would try to get the record we wanted to record it, mm -hmm. wanted to record. I mean, sometimes there'd be an extra two or three songs, you know, and then might drop a couple, but. We just got a studio in Agora Hills, uh, California, that's uh, world-class. You know, so you, you bought know. this studio in Agora Hills? Bought it. Oh, fantastic. There, yeah. 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 So did that, when you did that, I'm just curious, uh, you did that, you buy it lock, stock, and barrel, kind of a turnkey sort of thing, or do you, it's just the room and the board or something? No, it was a studio. It was, it was, it was yeah, I mean, it was a completely empty studio right. with nothing in it. Uh -huh. um, Billy had, you know, you saw the studio that we had in Beverly right. Hills, right. A dozen years ago or so right, right. and uh so all this every every piece of wire every you know everything i could steal out of that place uh -huh. we put in storage until we got the new place uh -huh. so the console the speakers everything we uh had in storage and so we got everything kind of dusted off and you know tweaked by a, a technician and put it all back and it's fabulous yeah. it's beautiful it sounds ridiculously good and it's comfortable and it's like three times the size of the old place and also the other thing that's great is it's like a hundred yards down the hill from the main house <laughs> and so last yeah. time it was in the basement and yeah, so right. you know billy's right. wife and family would be like listening to me you know playing guitar super loud at right. you know four o'clock in the morning right. and now there's nothing there it's no. dead silent and so, no one, no one uh, so this is the record that you did record in the Gore Hills in the new, no, new studio? No, no, that'll be the next one. You're, you're, already, you're already working on the next record. It's we, finished. We finished. It's it. done. Yeah, really? Yeah. It's mixed. Yeah, yeah we well, put mixed. it on to quarter inch and yeah. put it away. Choose your words carefully. There's a judge behind every tree. The jury appears as lived half your years. Let me go back to this. I, you know, I'm a longtime fan of, um, you know, country music, re regardless of its, you know, origin. But I do find that I just, I don't. What's the deal with California that everybody <laughs> makes records? I don't. I'll probably get somebody, somebody's going to throw a pie at me or something. But the, the the records in California, country records particularly, especially you know some of that Bakersfield stuff, and then sort of that Nouveau Bakersfield stuff with you know like Maria McKee and Jim Lauderdale and all that, that, that that kind of thing. Those records, they always sound so great, and they they're so clear and. What is the deal? Is it, what are you basing this on? Are you just basing it on the fact that you know some of these other engineers and other players? Or well, no, I mean well, we've always done everything ourselves. But, but Southern California actually does have. Well, you get out there and you get in this mentality of remember how this record sounded, mm -hmm. and honestly, all of our gear is the stuff that the Beatles made their records on. Okay, 
And I mean, and no, well, not just the Beatles, but I mean, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, a, a, a lot of other people like that. And you know, when we buy stuff, we don't go get the latest thing that they just put on the internet. You know, I mean, we've got old school stuff. No, and, I noticed when I was in that basement. Oh, so yeah. you guys are analog guys with judicious use of like Pro yeah. Tools and digital, exactly. right? Yes. That's what's going on. Exactly. So like all your. Exactly. Like your amps and stuff for tube amps, and you're using some really cool. Yeah. I remember the early sixty. You know, I remember the studio. Oh kind of yeah, what I remember yeah. was like these instruments that were set yeah. up and these amps and stuff. Well, just, we've got on this last record we did just to give you an example. I've got a four-piece Ludwig drum kit like mm -hmm. Ringo had. Right. That's what I play on. Right. I got old Zildjian cymbals that mm -hmm. are crusty, and I don't polish them. Right, and. Uh, JD on this last record played the guitars through a Fender Bassman head and cabinet, and from the early sixties. From the early sixties and and a nineteen sixty five Vox AC thirty of mine, mm -hmm. and that's the two amps used on there, except for one little Rickenbacker. Yeah, amp, this weird little sixties Rickenbacker amp. amp that sounds like it's broken. Yeah, but and that's we, why we use it is because it sounds like yeah, it's broken. Right, right. We got all this stuff. And those are basically the three things we yeah, use. Yeah, but in, the, but in this Southern California mentality, what, what you're going for records that you knew of, but I, I, I to get back to the clarity of this, you know, yeah. and what is it, the Wrecking Crew or something? Was that the, right. that was that mm -hmm. was like Glenn Campbell? Were you friends with Glenn Campbell? Yes. <laughs> okay. I actually did know Glenn Campbell. He's an Arkansas Arkansas guy. Seventh son was, of the seventh son. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he was from D-Light, about an hour and a half from where I was from. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Is that, uh, that's over by Hot Strings, so that's over in eastern Arkansas in a bit? Well, away? it's kind of south central. South central. Yeah. So so the clarity is is, is coming from the, uh, I don't want to overstate this, but it, it's coming from using the uh, some older, older equipment, uh, like tube amps and things like that. But also yeah. there's just, but when you're mixing, it just still seems like. We just want to be able to hear it. And, you, know, and, <laughs> and, you know, it's, I mean, you know, my one, my mentor in the studio was Ed Cherney, who mixed oh, a yeah, couple yeah, of your records. Yeah, I you loved Ernie. I had it stuff every day at like three o'clock and roll a joint. Yeah. And, he, uh -huh. and he'd say, and he'd say, turn on Judge Judy. We need a little justice in the world. And, he would, <laughs> and he'd smoke the joint and watch yeah. Judge Judy and then we'd go back to mixing. It yeah, was exactly. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I worked with Ed for several years yeah. as his assistant, uh -huh. and so you know, I a lot of what I do is what I picked up from Ed, uh -huh. and uh, you know, it's like if it's not broken for him, yeah. you know, I'll I'll just keep doing it. Right. And you know, he was he was a, an amazing guy, and it's yeah. like, you know, yeah. gonna, gonna miss him. For, yeah, I, so. I, I loved him. He was, he, and he was, like I said, he'd take that break. But man, when he's on. Intensely oh, yeah. focused. It was just oh, yeah, really great. exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, was, <laughs> I, I was really lucky to ha have him, I, and and I do miss him. And he he also did the uh, archives for Rolling Stones. Is that what was what he well, was kind of the archivist? He he did a a lot of concerts, like uh -huh. a lot when I was working right. with him. A live lot. Stuff. It was a lot of live, okay. yeah, live concerts that were recorded and and yeah. and made videos of, yeah. and uh, so we we worked on that probably for a year straight where uh -huh. it was just stones concerts yeah. and uh yeah. um yeah they were they were hard yeah. <laughs> they were they were tough things to work on but uh it was uh um yeah you know it's just always just plugging away and sure. you know trying to make it sound as good as possible and
I'm Robert O'Keefe. You're listening to Americana Podcast of Fifty First State, and we're talking today to Billy, with Billy Bob Thornton and and JD Andrew, who just had a record coming. Just had a record out. It was April fifteenth, twenty twenty two. It's called Help. I'm Alive, and uh, we're talking about that record. I also thought that you used on this particular record some great uh, work with with the harmonies and and you know some some kind of echo harmonies and just the echoes. And and one of the great things was. And like we were talking about the clarity of sound that you get out there in Southern California, uh, you if you listen for the parts, you can hear hear them. You know, if you listen for the bass, you can hear it. If you listen <laughs> for the acoustic guitar, you can hear it. And that's like that's what I love to hear about a great record like that. It's just like you know, and some of those harmonies were just you know they were actually some of them were kind of complicated and some were but really out there and you could hear it. You know? And I thought that was great. And uh, so those are. Those are you singing with you a lot, and then JD kind of coming in. Well, I do the high parts, JD does the low parts, right? And it's funny because, uh, you know, I hear high harmony parts, uh-huh. I just always did. Uh-huh. I can hear what it is, right. I never can. And JD will tell you, I can't ever hear what the low parts are supposed to be. Right. And JD can hear them clear as a bell. Uh-huh. I mean, just he just knows what, what it ought to be, right. And we've had some harmony parts on records of ours before that might not be. It, in other words, we don't sit and, uh, I mean, once in a blue moon we do, but uh, if we get hit a snag, but we don't sit there with a the guitar and go, okay, this is that note, this is that note, this is that note. We just hear them and sing them. Uh-huh. And so sometimes they may be things that you might not have, particularly like in the Nashville world, wouldn't have done. Right. But we know that that's what it ought to be for what we're doing, right, you sure. know. And uh, but yeah, we JD and I do all the harmonies, and uh, um, we we have a thing that uh, you might get a kick out of where, uh, because we're you know we try to appeal because we're a rock and roll band to audiences of all ages. Right. So when we're doing one of our you know sixties, we're so influenced by the sixties when we're doing those records. Uh, I'll we'll have a song and I'll say JD you think uh, do I need to use my voice or my young voice (laughs) and so I actually have a way and JD will tell you about it that I actually have a way where I will sing like uh, let's say Alex Chilton or somebody you know that uh, that you know with a box tops or big star or whatever where I have a way that I sing that's different than if I were, if you and I were to sit down right now and write an Americana song where we were just going to sound like us, yes. there's that voice. Uh-huh. And then there's the other voice. It's like, oh, we're making rock and roll records, so now it's this one. Nice. Yeah. Nice. That's, well, that, that, that keeps it clean, doesn't it? And, uh, and, and, and uh, honest, I would say. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and that's the way I sung when I was a teenager, anyhow. And But a lot of our sound, uh, sometimes our vocals i mean you know when we you know you start putting a reverb or or delay or whatever you put on it like they did in the 60s if you listen to our vocals by themselves they don't sound a hell of a lot different i mean it's not like that it's not like you're taking something and using gadgets to make it sound like something else it's Pretty you, much the same thing. It's like, just like, well, throw a little reverb on that. Go with that, yeah. Go with the young boys and throw a little reverb. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Or sometimes it'll, you know, be like, you know, I think you might have uh, used the low voice in the verse, and maybe we need to use the, you know, the the younger voice in mm-hmm. the in this right. part or yeah. something, just because, you know, maybe it doesn't cut quite good. Sure. You know, the, 
you know cut through the track well enough or something or you know it's uh well you'll hardly yeah. ever hear us take a key down a half step no. or step yeah exactly go up. we go up a lot <laughs> we, we we you know we'll yeah. we'll 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 be in a do a song in a certain key and and uh, and JD will take the guitar and say well let, uh, let's go up a half step we'll go up half step no not quite we may need to go up a full step on this we'll go up a full step well, we might go we up end three up, or we four may go steps. up three three <laughs> steps on it yeah as long as we keep going and then it, you know it's like it'll it reach that exciting just, spot yeah, you know yeah, it'll yeah, like yeah. oh that's it yeah, that's right, that's yeah. where it really moves yeah, 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 yeah. and uh, you know it's uh, yeah it's just something that it's like yeah we knew that you know early on but it's like you you sometimes forget it's like you yeah. get comfortable like oh this song's in g that you uh, know yeah, it's just uh, right. wide open let's just flail away at it right. but then you're like yeah it's it feels good but this could be better and yeah. so it's just a matter of you know just finding that right spot yeah. where it just sits in the voice yeah. properly but now his shadow's fading fast We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with our interview shortly. At Americana Podcast, it is our goal to define and expand on this thing we call Americana. With help from our fervid aficionado, Will Vote, this is Will's Pick. Crooked Tree, from the album by the same name, by Molly Tuttle and the Golden Highway. You can't teach an old dog new tricks, is an expression that can be traced back hundreds of years. Like many often repeated phrases, that's not always true. Take bluegrass for an example, which is a musical genre that became popular in the 1940s and can be considered the foundation of roots music in this country, and is certainly a grandparent of the Americana genre. The term bluegrass generates images of Bill Monroe or Earl Scruggs, old white guys in black suits and string ties, in a circle playing various string instruments into a single microphone. That is a valid image, but don't be fooled. Bluegrass has not always been immune to the changes that are sweeping every genre of music. Like in the world we live in, it is evolving every day. There's a new generation of bluegrass players who are making some great music and expanding the boundaries of traditional bluegrass. They are the reason for the recent resurgence of the interest in the genre. Billy Strings, who we've had on this show, is one of the highest profiles of these new faces. Another name that might not be too familiar to you at this time is Molly Tuttle. Molly was born and raised in Northern California. Her father is a music teacher and a multi-instrumental player, and her grandfather was a banjo player. She took to music at an early age and is now well known for her talent with the guitar. In 2017, Molly was recognized as the International Bluegrass Music Association Guitar Player of the Year. Molly is much more than a guitar wizard. In fact, her early albums leaned a bit more folky singer-songwriter and showed off her ability as a writer and interpreter of other writers' songs. They only hinted at her real bluegrass roots. On her latest album, Crooked Tree, which was recorded in Nashville and produced by Jerry Douglas, Molly finally embraces her bluegrass roots with a vengeance. This is a collection of her own songs that really highlights her growth. Her lyrics are well matched to the traditional sound of her band, Golden Highway. The standout song on this record is the title track, which addresses diversity and the theme of being different in the world we live in. 
In this well-written, melodic song, a crooked tree is a great metaphor for the challenge that many of us face, thus making it Will's pick. Seems strange. I took the road less travel, twists and turns along the way. But like a crooked tree, I'm growing stronger day by day as the clouds roll by. The river never wandered why it flows around the bend. So uh, we're here with Billy Bob Thornton and J.D. Andrew on Americana Podcast, the 51st State. And uh, I'd like to talk about uh, the songs on the new record. Um, I, uh, uh, our producer uh, Claire Rosa talked about as soon as she just heard "Focus on the One," she goes, "They're talking about this in a music way." And then, <laughs> then I listen to the next chorus. It's like, and musically speaking, or whatever, oh, so yeah. it sets it up musically speaking. So, is that what we're and <clears throat> on "Focus on the One"? We're just talking about like uh, don't get off the track kind of thing, or don't don't get off your path and just focus on the one. But it's a bigger well, bigger picture thing. It it's it's both things. Uh -huh. And what that song is about, we wanted to write it like lyrically, it has references to music right. of focusing on the one, right. on the downbeat, right. and, uh, you know, come together, right. everybody stay on um, the one, yeah, you know, sure. like that. And, but it has d a double meaning because the song, the song started out uh, <clears throat> as a song about how during, especially during the pandemic and, and, and even before that, uh, the society started to uh, separate people so much. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> it was like either you're far right or you're far left and there's no middle. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about, and I tell people this all the time, about how they're trying to kill the middle. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the original idea I had about that was focus on the one. It's like, let's all get back on the same road mm -hmm here mm -hmm. you know focus on the one but then we decided to make it in musical terms too so mm -hmm. it, it actually has a double meaning for everything so we used musical terms to explain right. have people lost their damn minds <laughs> i mean it's like you know it's like you're killing the middle and everybody's drawing a line in the sand and everybody's you know mm -hmm. uh picking sides here you know and the way I've always been is, uh, you know, it's like, well, if I hear a, an idea from this side that makes sense to me, I like that. Mm -hmm. If I hear one from over here, it makes sense. I like that, too. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like, well, they don't want us to do that anymore mm -hmm. because it's an easy way to control people, right. you know. And so that's really what that song is about. But if you notice on the song, we really do musically focus, focus on, on one, one. I, I, like exactly. you know that downbeat yeah, is like yeah, real yeah, heavy in yeah, there, right, you know. Right. So that's that's what that was all about. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that, was, that was I really like like that, and I'm, I'm glad you pointed it out because you know it takes me like four or five times to really pick up on right. some of those uh, more nuanced ideas, right. you know. <laughs> but it really, really cool song. Uh, another one that really caught my ear was uh, "You'll Never Be Mine" because I truly thought that was you know one of the great great hook because you know, that's a song that truly is a universal thought with mm -hmm. everybody. I mean, and it might mm -hmm. be one of a thing where it's somebody you don't even know and you'll, mm -hmm. they'll never be mine, but you have some right. kind of strong attraction, but it's mm -hmm. also one of those ones when you put a lot of effort into some <laughs> kind of um, emotional contact, you realize it's not, you'll never be mine. I thought that was really good. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, that's one of our favorites. It, it's one of the ones that we play live actually. Right? Yeah. And, uh, 
uh, I have to have a smoke every now and then during the show. Uh-huh. And, uh, <laughs> you and, and Guy uh, Clark, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and so you'll never be not mine. Not the same kind of smoke as Guy. Uh, okay, yeah. Well, yeah. Not, that having, having, not that kind. Well, having well, known Guy. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, no, well, guy used to sit there and smoke in a non-smoking place, and then he'd end his show by saying, thank you for not smoking. <laughs> right. <laughs> we love Guy Clark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, no, this uh, on You'll Never Be Mine, that's where it's about, you know, seven six seven eight songs into the show and that's right about when i'm jonesing uh-huh. so uh so i'll give the lead guitar player a little bit of time to show off and i'll go back and have one but uh but you'll never be mine once again as dumb as i am which i am uh for some reason i mean like i'm a total my family will tell you i'm just an idiot i can't, I can't uh, you know put three sentences together usually but for some reason, when I write a song or a screenplay, somehow I manage to, it's like some kind of savant thing. Yeah, sure. And so a lot of our songs, uh, you know, they on the surface, they'll sound like one thing, and then when you find out what it's actually about, you'll never be mine, which sounds like it's about a man singing to about a girl that he could never knows he could never have. Right. The song is actually about agoraphobia. <laughs> And <laughs> what it is, is uh, when you say in the song, you'll never be mine, meaning life will never be mine. Uh-huh. And so it has lines in there like uh, some, some, from somewhere the smoke from a fireplace is drifting. I try to imagine who started the fire. Uh, I do something, 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 but never inquire. Um, so in other words, he's a guy, he'll take a walk outside of his house and he'll see there's a smoke coming out of a fireplace. It's holiday time. There's people in there having a good time, and but he wouldn't dare ever go in there because I suffered from agoraphobia for a while. My mother wasn't agoraphobic, so the song really means uh, it, it, that life will never be mine. Oh, I yeah. see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So that seems to be a common theme here that we're talking <laughs> about. Is like, like uh, it says something on on the surface and the title uh, expresses some idea but right. there's always more to it exactly yeah well that's most of them yeah. I mean, we do have some baby beat me at the malt shop songs <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of these songs it's like you know until we start doing interviews where we talk about the meaning of the songs i don't have any clue what they're about uh-huh. you know? so it's like it's like uh all right sometimes i'll get the the underlying meaning but a lot of the times i'm just like well, this is a cool pop song. Let's yeah. record it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, J.D., you're one of those guys that you have to go, I don't go by titles, man. Just tell me what key this <laughs> right. is. Yeah. is right? It's like, okay, yeah. here's yeah. the chord oh, progression. Let's do it. Yeah. 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 This is four to the five to six minor. And then <laughs> back to the one. Right? So let's go back to the one, right? Uh, so exactly. The, the title, well, it's not the title track, but the first track, Golden Hour. Yeah, what a beautiful song. Well, thank you. Yeah. You know, that's one of my favorites. Yeah. And you know what? What's a shame about Golden Hour? <clears throat> excuse me. One of the things that's a shame about that song is, you know, when I'm sure you've done this a million times, you got a record, and when you hear that record, you go, "Boy, that thing thing's gonna sound amazing live." Right. And you go in and rehearse it with a band, and it just falls flat on its butt. Oh, I understand. And so I wanted to play Golden Hour on the tour so bad, and we rehearsed it with a band, and it sounded like a, an Alan Sherman song. I mean, <laughs> it, and you're probably the only one that will get that reference. But, uh, no, no, no. Yeah. <clears throat> but, yeah. And it just, 
it just fell flat and yeah. and it I, I mean there may be a way where we can work on it to where we can get it there but we're not planning on tour and i really wanted to and golden hour is golden hour is what they call it when you're making a movie and it gets to start to be where the sun goes down and that's the perfect light to shoot in right okay and there was a, an individual that uh, I knew fairly well uh, during the uh, process of uh, making a career that when she wasn't there, it just didn't seem like ah. Golden Hour. Ah. So it's the only song I think I've ever written because I keep my other career very separate from my music career. Right. And it, I think it's the only one that I ever wrote that was specifically about being on a movie set. Right. And and that was about, you know, every, every time since I knew this person that they're not there, uh, there's always something missing. And in the song, it talks about, like, I do this for a job. I kiss the woman of the hour right. or whatever it is, whoever's there in front of me now, but I'm still always thinking about you. So it's like a, you know each day at golden hour I miss your face oh, you know and that's beautiful. that's that's what that's about I'm Robert Earl Keen, and you listen to Americana Podcast of Fifty First State. We're talking to, to Billy Bob Thornton and J.D. Andrew. And um, uh, one of the things that we always like to do here at Americana Podcast is um, ask you about Americana itself. Uh, when you when you think of um, the genre of Americana, how would you define it, Billy Bob? Well. First, and the easiest way to get to this is talking about radio when we were growing up. All right. And as we've talked about, we were in the same era. Sure. We, we were right. born the same year. So um, I have to say that when I was growing up, we had KWAY at Little Rock, and then at night, KWAY had an underground show with Clyde Clifford. It was like spookier music, and that's where you'd hear the Allman Brothers do whipping post, oh, yeah. you know, and all this kind of stuff. And... Uh, off of that, actually off of Clyde Clifford's show, which was called Beaker Street, it came on at like 11 or 12 at night, uh, I, I heard this song called Sylvia's Mother by Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show, and I always liked that song. And to this day, we end, when, uh, if we get an encore, we end our encore with Sylvia's Mother, but we do more of a rocking version of it. It's not a ballad. But <clears throat> when I was growing up, you would hear James Taylor and Black Sabbath on the same radio station. It was all rock, right? So you would hear Jonathan Edwards doing Sunshine, and then the next song might be Led Zeppelin doing A Whole Lot of Love. So everything wasn't categorized. You know, it was like you're either on the rock and roll station or you're on the country station or whatever. And so as time went on, they started to compartmentalize everything, and then all of a sudden it's like, well, you're on the soft rock adult contemporary alternative stuff, you know, and it's like, what the hell is that? 
And to me, and this is just my opinion, I think what they did, because, you know, the Flying Burrito Brothers and the Birds, they were taking these country influences and playing them for a hippie audience. And to me, that's where uh, Americana started was with people like that, like the Birds. And so once they started to separate everybody on these different radio stations, heavy metal station, hair band station, death metal station, you know, all these different ones, I think Americana became where they put everybody they didn't know what to do with. <laughs> it's like, well, they're a rock and roll band, right. but they're not really a hard rock band. Right. And Robert Earl Keane, well, he writes these brilliant lyrics, and he's such a great singer, and he's got these things, and he's got this country thing to him, but at the same time, he's got this vibe that's not country or whatever. It's like, well, we'll put him on Americana, too. So to me, that's where it happened. So Emmy Lou Harris is on Americana, but then so is Fish, <laughs> you know. And so it's like all of a sudden, you have all the people that were in the 60s country or rock and roll and since those things don't exist, because to me, and this is this gets me in a lot of trouble, but Nashville country today is like what well, we used to call it Def Leppard with a steel guitar. Right. But, you know, where it wasn't really, you know. Is that because of Mutt Lang and, and uh, well, that's Shania, what Shania, Shania Twain? Exactly. Well, that's well, that, not even that anymore. Yeah, it's, well, exactly. it's a whole different thing. It's, but, it's even moved further away? Is well, that yeah. Right? Well, I mean, well, it's that, just more pop music now. Yeah, it's, and, and the hair bands. You remember when the hair bands were in L.A. in the '80s and early '90s? All those when the bottom fell out of the hair band business, all those producers moved to Nashville. Right. It's like, well, we're going to make big power ballads, you know, mm-hmm. with these country people. So we'll right. throw a steel guitar in there. They can wear a hat. I don't care and it, where they're from. Right. We'll put a hat on them, and then we'll find the cutest looking people we can find. Right. And we're going to make them into big country stars, and then country became that. And there's plenty of people there that in Nashville that still stuck to what they do. Sure. You know, Marty still Marty Stewart and sure. guys like that still do it. But I just believe that, you know, Americana is where the people who had a place in 50s, 60s, 70s, and even in part of the 80s right. that had a place in music – Americana is now where they put all them because they don't know what to do with them. Right. Yeah. Um, anyway. <laughs> I, I, no, no, I, I, that's, that's, that's not far off. Uh, I mean, it is certainly a, a breeding ground for or an amalgam of many, many different styles of music. Um, I, I, always, I, like, I like to focus on the one on this one a little bit. You know, right. what, I like to, <laughs> what I really like to say is uh, I feel like um, it is an, a, a format where People can really express themselves because a lot of almost everybody in Americana are singing their own songs and they're not being, mm-hmm. you know, the, in in country they do a lot of there's a lot of co-writes and people put songs, but they do a lot. By and large, they will do an outside song from an outside writer, mm-hmm. and 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 so it might express some of their ideas, but it's not like as true as the Americana mm-hmm. genre as far as like people yeah. writing and. You know, you know some some Americana things are just full blown, just acoustic guitars and oh, and yeah, a song. Sure. You know? So, so I see it as, as a breeding ground and and a new hope, really.
have had one number one record uh-huh. on radio, and it was on Americana Radio, right. and it was our second record, Mod Billy, and it was it was number one for two weeks, and so we revere Americana right. Radio. Right, right. I mean, yeah, we and, are and, all you for know, it. And honestly, you know, it's like we could we could work harder at trying to promote our records to sure. radio, but yeah. you know, it's like at the same time, we'd rather be in the studio writing another song, sure. you know, yeah. and, but and. Americana Radio is a very personal, you know, like reaching out right. to each programmer and DJ and, you right. know, making friends with right. them. You know, we've done that in certain places. And it that personal aspect is really a big part of Americana Radio. Sure. And so if you're not really working it, they might not even, even know you've got a record out. So musically so, speaking, where did, you, where did you start, J.D.? Uh, uh, I, as far as like... I, I'm from Kansas. Yeah. And, and, what, uh, what town? Uh, outside of Salina. Okay. And mm-hmm. so I grew up there, you know, singing in church groups. And then uh, I went to Kansas State for a while and was in a show choir. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then, uh, but during that, I was like, I want to make records. And uh-huh. so I, I went to a recording school in Florida. And then. And how did you to, get interested in uh, making records? Or? I just, I, I just had the thought one day, it's like, I want to make records. Uh-huh. I didn't know what that meant, really. Right. I, it, at that time, I didn't really think that I was going to be playing. You know, mm-hmm. I just was like, I want to make records, and I really had no, I had no connection. References here um, uh, would be. I grew up on the Beach Boys and the Beatles. Okay. I, I, you know, I, I basically I listened to uh, the oldie station that sure. was uh, out of Abilene, Kansas, and that was uh, what I grew up listening to, and. I loved the Chipmunks and I loved the Beach Boys and that was the, like the two records I just wore out on my plastic turntable, and I just was like I want to make records and I I went I was going to Kansas State and I said uh, to my uh, advisor or whatever he was called I said hey I I want to learn how to record records and he's like well there's recording schools you could try those it's like huh so I found I was going to go to MT, uh, Middle Tennessee State and. You know, I, I didn't I didn't apply myself very much at college, so my uh, credits weren't going to transfer uh-huh. worth a dang. So I found this other school that was like one year, and then I'd be done and be out and working. So I uh, I did that, moved to Nashville, and you know started working there. I made cassette copies of song demos for a publishing company for you know three or four years. What what, what publishing? EMI. Company? You might. Uh, so, well, it's you know, a good, good place to be. Yeah, I, I got really lucky. And so, yeah. you know, they had a studio in the basement. And, uh, you know, it's like I started working with a lot of, uh, you know, broke local, mm-hmm. you know, musicians. Um, you know, guys that were in town that, you some know, maybe the writer, sidemen. Some of the writers that were in AMI at that time, um, do you recall? Well, yeah, I'll, I'll get to that in one second. Okay, sure. Like, but uh, you know, like, but there was these local guys like Will Kimbrough and mm-hmm. Tommy Womack and mm-hmm. guys that are you know Americana, mm-hmm. you know, mainstays these days essentially. Mm-hmm. But one day, you know, Chris, the studio guy, engineer, the house guy, had to leave town for something, and he's like, "Hey, um, we're about to mix a Guy Clark record." Um, and I got to go. So can you do it? Mm-hmm. And so I went and helped Guy and Daryl Scott mm-hmm. and Verlin Thompson mix Cold Dog Soup. Oh, nice. Yeah. And, you know, that was it. I was just like, I've got to record 
that's you know I you know had been kind of in the music businessy mm-hmm. part of things, and I was like, yeah, no, this is not. Mm-hmm. Not for me. I want to be in the studio. You didn't like management, did you? No, no, I, no. I had no interest in it. I, basically, I called you know like pitching song demos was like you know selling used cars. There was no difference between the two for me. I was like, this is just you know selling selling stuff, yeah. and it's like I don't want to sell stuff. So I uh, I started trying to get a job in a studio. None of the places in Nashville would hire me. Cause I had a record, I had a couple of credits and they're like, no, you're, you're already an engineer. And it's like, no, I'm not. I'm just been in the studio. And so I met this guy named Chubba who was a LA recording engineer who had started producing some Nashville country artists. And he had some local band that he was working with and he needed an engineer. And he's like, mate, if you really want to learn how to make records, you got to move to LA. And I was like, well, great. Can you help me get a job? And he's like, well, okay. I'll, you know, yeah, I'll see what I can do. A couple months later, he called me and said, uh, hey, my wife is now managing a studio called Conway, which is where he had started. And he said, she just fired somebody. You should go see her. And I was going to L.A. on vacation there like the next day anyway. (laughs) I was going there to hang out with a friend of mine. Mm -hmm. And so that lady gave me a job well six years later she was billy's music manager Mm. and so she had called me to hey billy needs somebody for two weeks to record overdubs Mm. and so it's like the whole thing you know just me meeting this guy in nashville his wife being you know somebody that gave me a job and then you know stayed in contact with you know that's how we formed the box masters it's this you know it's a long you know long way to get there but that's how it was and yep. you know if if i wouldn't have you know worked on that guy clark record and went you know this is this is it this is what i got to do you know then i would have you know I'd, i wouldn't be here right, right. and you <laughs> yeah. have a definition of americana Jane? oh you know for me it's uh these days it's uh yeah it's uh, anybody who writes their own songs who's a singer songwriter and just there's nowhere else to put him you know mm-hmm. and and it's basically anybody that I like is pretty much on Americana. Right. And there's nowhere else. Mm-hmm. There's no nobody that we like in the last, you know, 30 years has been a, like a mainstream pop artist or anything like that. Right. So right. it's always you just find them on, you know, AAA or Americana radio. And, right. and that's and there's like, you know, 10 radio stations that you can even get. Mm-hmm. So basically you have to work to find music that you like and thankfully we've you know met a lot of people along the way you know or um heard about them so, at some way you know you, you used to be you know you'd read no no depression or something like that and you'd right. like oh, okay these are the records i need to go check out or you go to a record store and you'd like go to the sections and you'd just flip through the records and be like oh this one looks cool oh you know you know somebody that you'd heard of or you know that uh maybe somebody you know had mentioned somebody else they're like oh you know steve Earle liked uh you know grew up on somebody and so you're like oh let's go find out who these records were that you know that steve liked right. and uh um it you just yeah it used to be there was so much you had to work to find what you liked right. and these days you can just like you know turn on your phone and start letting right. it recommend stuff to you sure. but uh you don't have that 
you know, the gratification of working to find, you know, things and that, that really become a part of you. And sure. it's, it's, uh, it's not, it's not any fun anymore, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but you know, I'm, you know, every year I renew my Americana music association membership <laughs> and it's like, you know, we're, I mean, we're still classified in that, in that area, but even we are, sometimes outside of Americana's, you know, kind of reaches or like sure. what they'll play on the radio. But we're, you know, it's we're as we're close just... to a punk band as they have on Americana. Oh, there you go. <laughs> at, yeah, at times. There you, you go. Know, there you we, go. we make a mess. There's a pool of lonely fools Looking for some beauty to behold They have no golden rules Your heat will melt them down Turn away from me and walk into tomorrow with your plan. You have a plan for the new record? Is that what? We, well, we just recorded it, and uh, it'll probably be the next one we put out. Probably twenty-three. Probably twenty-three. Probably twenty-three. And uh, it's uh, it's something that we're real, have real a happy title. with. Well, right now we're calling it the Boxmaster '69. Okay. Yeah. Because okay. it because of the sounds that we used on it, you know, we thought, well, let's go a little past the mid '60s, like we did on a couple other records, and get to late, you know, late '60s where uh-huh. you're going into the '70s. Okay. And okay. so that, we called it that for that reason, and uh-huh. not the nasty reason. <laughs> yeah. okay, there you go. <laughs> but uh, it's—I uh, tell you what. You know, you always hope that your latest record is your best one. Sure. And when you say it, everybody goes, "Yeah, of course you think that." But you know what? I got to tell you something. This is the best one. It, I, I believe, and JD yeah. believes, it's the best record we ever made. I mean, all of them have a special place, and we love certain ones for different reasons. But uh, there, actually, we have a record called Providence. Uh-huh that we never put out that's only available digitally. Yeah, we, we, we put it out digitally, but Pretty we never right. made a physical copy uh-huh. of it. Uh-huh. And I think that's a record you'd really dig. Okay. And we're kind of moving to the wrap-up, so I just uh, want to ask, uh, as far as like uh, those very cool instruments and things that uh, you've been playing, uh, what's your favorite? What's your go-to? You're mainly a guitar player when you do a lot yeah, of stuff? So mainly, what's your go-to when, when mainly, you start to play guitar? My favorite, well, my favorite guitar, I have a... Uh, a duo jet, a Gretsch duo jet, uh-huh. and uh, is that what year it's, is that? It's 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 just like a uh, 2010, uh-huh. 20, 2008, somewhere like that. Right. I got it when we uh, kind of first started. Um, I'm a big Crowded House fan. Uh-huh. If you know that band, sure, yeah, you know sure. Neil Finn was a uh, Neil Finn always plays an old Gretsch red duo jet, and uh-huh. I oh, I got one of those because I'm a big uh-huh. Neil Finn fan. Yeah. And uh, this is a six string electric guitar. Six, yeah, six string electric guitar. Um, it fell. We were playing in Huntsville, Alabama, playing a show. It fell off the stand and, you know, snapped the headstock off mm-hmm. in one show. My tech, you know, super glued it together. I had to, you know, take it someplace else to get it worked on a little bit. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's got scars. It's, you know, but that character. It's, it stays in tune. Uh, you know, yeah. it's like it's <laughs> always in tune. And, you know this it just has a sound like it has a very specific sound that when i play it 
I know what it, exactly what it is. Right. You know, it doesn't matter what I run it through. It always kind of has the same sound. Sound, yeah. And yeah. other, you know, we've got a lot of guitars, and you know, I've they do them. different things. Yeah. But it's like if I need something that's kind of familiar, it's gonna have you know just add this certain thing to it. You know, I would grab the the duo jet. Mm-hmm. And, and you, uh, Billy yeah. Bob, you, your favorite uh, guitar? Other, well, I mean, other, you have the four-piece Ludwig set, of course, right? Yeah. But, but uh, well, five-piece Ludwig. Five, well, it's now it's five-piece because yeah. JV for my birthday got me an 18-inch floor tom, so now it's a five-piece. <laughs> but uh, my one of the guitars that I get a kick out of when we use it on the songs is uh, an old silver tone with the and it's got the amp with the amp oh, in the I case. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I gave one. The, I uh, bought yeah. one. I had it. I never uh-huh. used it much. I gave it to my guitar player because he's like, "What the hell is that?" You know, <laughs> he, he loved. It. I said, "You should take." Do this you ever get electrocuted I'm, by it? I know. Oh, yeah. no, Boy, if ours, if you touch it and yeah. plug it into that little amp in the yeah. case and yeah. touch something metal, it'll shock you. It is an, <laughs> and it's a nasty sounding guitar yeah, sometimes. I, I, I like it. it right. Oh yeah. I get a yeah, kick out of that yeah, thing, yeah. and then that's what I started when I was a kid. Yeah. I'd write little songs in yeah. G, C, and D. I I had a little silver tone, but but yeah. that and I, I love JD's Duo Jet. But I also love the uh, you know we've got Reckenbacher guitars that we have a '66 Reckenbacher 12 string. We got a '66 P bass, and then my brother who passed away in 1988. Uh, I have his guitar, which is a '57 Les Paul Junior. That. Nice. We just have it there because it's his. We don't use it that much, but uh, but I would just have to say my favorite sound that comes out. But I also love uh, uh, love our uh, if we if we if it had a, a Bixby on it <laughs> is the uh, uh, oh the little airline or? the airline. I, I love that airline guitar. I've got one of those. Those yeah. are pretty fun. I, I, I like that certainly simple. You don't get mixed up on those, do you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, All right, this is Americana Podcast. My name is Robert O'Keen. We've been talking to J.D., Andrew, and Billy Bob Thornton, the great Billy Bob Thornton. Oh. And I want to th- thank <laughs> you. I also, uh, we have uh, one sort of question that we, uh, other than talking about Americana Podcasts and Americana music, uh, we like to find out. And we'll throw this to you first, J- J.D. Um, I, we believe here at Americana Podcast that they've really done a disservice to the beautiful instrument that is known as the B3. I don't know what what military person decided to call it the B3, but we're looking for a new name for the B3. So, would you have a would would you have a something for a B3 heart? the yeah. B3 organ? If you, could, huh? if you were if you got to rename the B3, what would you call it? Well, I I don't know that I I don't call it the B3 that much. I just call it the Hammond. Ah, you know, so since you go, it's you know, so you just go with the Hammond. Right? I just go straight Hammond or the organ, uh-huh. and you know, we've got a great B three in the studio uh-huh. with, with Leslie, and I love playing that thing. But you know, it's more more often we just call it the organ, uh-huh. you know, and you know we also use a lot of Farfisa and Continental and old transistor organs sure. as well. Yeah. But when we say the organ, we're talking about the b3 right so yeah, you know yeah. it's okay. really it's They're just it's the the thing. organ yeah the, the organ yeah, i right, guess or the go. hammond so uh, <laughs> billy bob thornton the great billy bob thornton uh, if you you could get to rename the b3 what would you call it i'd call it the rn <laughs> and that, which, uh, which reference to that stands for Rody's Nightmare. <laughs> there you go, the Rody's Nightmare. Yeah. There you go. I like that. Yeah, we got it. 
We've been talking to Billy Bob Thornton and J.D. Andrew here at Americana Podcast. So we certainly thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast, and uh, we look forward to seeing you. Down. I'm Robert O'Keen, and we look forward to seeing you down the road. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, oh, thank you. At this time, we would like to thank our host, Robert Earl Keane, Nicole Heckendorn, and our guests, Billy Bob Thornton and J.D. Andrews. Americana Podcast is brought to you by Keane Productions, produced and edited by Clara Rose, with original music by Kim Warner. Until next time, let the music play. <laughs>